Okay, so my name's uh, Richard Holton. I, uh, I now teach here in Cambridge. Um, and I'm very pleased to be, be able to introduce this session. We have two speakers, Gideon Rosen um, from Princeton. I've known him a long time. We were graduate students together. If I'd, if I'd started as a graduate student when I should have done, I would have been in the same year as Gideon, but I deferred for a couple of years, so I'm in that permanent relationship of being two years behind someone from graduate school. Which, um, so I defer in certain ways, but that one. Um, and uh, as you doubtless know, he, uh, he started working in metaphysics, uh, philosophy, mathematics, and the like, and has uh, shifted ever, ever more towards ethics as time has gone on, whilst uh, retaining those other interests. So uh, he's going to be talking on culpability and duress. And responding, Marsha Barron... Um, at Indiana, and she's been visiting at, uh, at St. Andrews for the last couple of years. Um, she started, I guess, as a humanizing Kantian, um, <laughs> humanizing and unapologetic as much as she could be. Um, since then, she's been working in uh, numerous different areas, including most recently in self-defense and um, areas around provocation, manipulation, and such like. So let me pass over to Gideon. All right, I'm going to set up. All right, so this is a talk about um, moral responsibility for actions done under duress, um, by which I mean actions done where there's a, an imminent threat of death or serious bodily harm to the agent or to someone close to him or her. Um, the starting point is common sense. Sometimes duress functions as a defense to a moral charge. That is sometimes an action that would otherwise be culpable or morally blameworthy is blameless, as we would say, because done under duress. And the challenge is to say why duress functions as an excuse when it does. So that's the theoretical problem. I'm going to talk entirely about the moral philosophical issues, not about law at all. Though the case I'm going to discuss raises really interesting legal issues, which I'd be happy to talk about later on if anybody cares. Some cases involving duress are at least theoretically easy, awful to endure, but easy to theorize about. Um, sometimes duress functions as a justification. So consider a soldier who divulges military secrets under torture or under threat of torture. If the secrets are trivial, as he knows, and the torture is horrible, then although divulging those secrets without this threat might very well be morally blameworthy if he does it under these circumstances, he's not blameworthy. Why? Because under these circumstances, it's okay to reveal trivial secrets rather than endure torture. In this case, the act is blameless because it is morally permissible. So that's the kind of general statement we want to cover all of the cases. It's not going to cover all of them, as we will see. Equally, relatively straightforward, theoretically, are cases where duress works not as a justification, as I see it, but as an excuse. Suppose the th secrets are very important, so important that he is morally bound not to reveal them, no matter what. Nonetheless, if the torture is horrible enough, it can flood the soldier's mind with pain or fear, or intense feeling of one sort or another, and that sort of intense feeling can neutralize the agent's capacity for reflective self-control, that is, the capacity to appreciate the reasons for keeping his mouth shut or to act on those reasons even if he recognizes them. And if the pain and the fear, if the feeling itself and its effect on his psychology are not themselves blameworthy, 
That is, if they are not the result of prior culpable wrongdoing, or if they're not the manifestations of a vice of some kind, then the resulting incapacity is blameless. And here's another principle, which is interesting to discuss, but which I'm going to say relatively little about. When an act is done from blameless practical incapacity, when the agent is, through no fault of his own, substantially incapable of appreciating the reasons against his act or of conforming his conduct to those reasons, then the act is morally blameless. So that's going to cover some cases also, but it's not going to cover all of them. It's not going to cover this guy. Um, we could have this conversation entirely in terms of hypothetical cases. That would be fine by me. But for rhetorical purposes, it's going to be useful for me to talk about a real case. And there is one that suits my purposes that I've become sort of obsessed by. This is a guy named Drezen Erdemovich, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. Um, he was a member of one of the firing squads during the principal massacre after Srebrenica. So old men and teenage boys who had been left behind after the siege of Srebrenica were um, piled into buses, driven to a farm outside the city, and massacred. It's, I believe, the most gruesome massacre in European history after the Second World War. Um, he later estimated that he personally shot as many as 70 people over a couple of hours, all of whom were bound and gagged and shot in the back. So if there were nothing more to his story, he would be morally culpable for a grotesque wrong. But there is more to the story, so much more that I have to restrain myself, otherwise we'd talk about him for the rest of the evening. Um, here's, here's some of the relevant bits. So, Although this was an ethnic war, he was serving as a soldier in the army of the Serbian Republic. He was himself a Bosnian of Croatian descent. He had no interest in the war at all. He had joined this unit after trying out a bunch of others out of desperation to feed his family. He had requested an on-combat assignment and had been granted one. And nonetheless, his unit was given guns, armed, shipped out to this farm, and told that they were going to be required to murder a bunch of civilians. And at that point, Erdanovich, this is his testimony, but it's not contradicted, and there's reason to believe that it's true, turned to the whole unit and said, are you normal? Do you know what you're doing? These are human beings. You can't do this. At which point, his captain put a gun to his head and said, either you shoot with us or you hand over your gun and be shot along with them. Um, this doesn't happen very often. There are very few recorded cases of somebody being coerced at gunpoint to comply with an illegal order on the battlefield, but this is a case of that kind. He deserted as soon as he could, um, told his story to a reporter, so it's thanks to his spilling the beans that we know about this massacre. Um, he alerted the world to its existence. He turned himself in, was tried by the Serbs, imprisoned in Belgrade, then transferred to The Hague, where he was tried again by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, charged with crimes against humanity pled guilty, and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. The more you hear about the story, the more sympathetic he becomes. He's as sympathetic as any mass murderer could be, I think. The question I want to ask is, is Erdanovich morally blameworthy for what he did? That is, this is a bit stipulative, but this is the topic as I understand it, um, does his act merit resentment or indignation? That is, I understand moral blame in a paradigm case as a matter of Strassonian resentment or indignation for the act. The question is whether those reactive emotions are warranted or apt in light of what he did. I take it that this is a hard question. 
He's obviously less blameworthy than a cold-blooded murderer or a gung-ho ethnic cleanser. Um, But it's unclear whether he's altogether blameless, whether he has a complete defense, as it were, or whether his blame is just mitigated by the circumstances. I want to know whether his blame is reduced altogether to zero, that is, whether he has a complete defense to the moral charge. And intuition does not deliver a clear verdict on that question. So instead of trying to stare at this case and get a firmer verdict about it, I'm going to ask a theoretical question. What could his defense possibly be? And the effect, I think, is that once you see what a defense in this area might look like, it becomes more plausible than it is initially that he does have a complete defense. I'm not going to argue that um, it's clear that he does, but I do think that verdict becomes clear, more plausible as one begins to see what the um, case for it might look like. So this is now, again, a bit of terminology, and Marsha's going to talk about some of this. Defenses are either justifications or excuses, as I use these terms. A justification shows the act to have been permissible in the circumstances, that he was morally justified in acting as he did, whereas an excuse shows the act to have been blameless without regard to whether it was permissible or not. So if you use the terms in this way, though, it's slightly odd. One can be both justified and excused. So when a small child or a maniac does something that's morally permissible, his act may be both justified and excused. I want to know whether Erdemovich's act was justified, excused, or both. In the real case, there is an argument which is, for my theoretical purposes, a bit of a distraction. I think he probably was morally justified in acting as he did. The argument for that goes by way of a Pareto principle. The crucial fact is that his victims were already lost, very plausibly. No matter what he did in the circumstances, they would have died exactly as they did, at the same time, in the same way, under the same circumstances. And I accept a version of a principle that says this. Your acts are justified when those affected are no worse off in any morally relevant respect than they would have been had you chosen any of the other actions available to you, and at least one person is better off. And plausibly, Erdemovich's act in the actual case satisfies that condition. He made no one worse off than they would otherwise have been, given the options open to him, and at least he made himself and his family better off. That principle, as stated, has some repugnant consequences. Um, It implies not just that someone who kills under these circumstances because he's been threatened with execution, is morally blameless. It also applies in the case where someone could not have saved anyone kills under these circumstances because he's been threatened by a, with a slap on the wrist or a demotion in rank or something like that. If you think the action couldn't possibly have been justified in those circumstances, then you reject the Pareto principle as formulated. You might prefer the weaker modified principle, which requires in addition that the harm one prevents by doing a be of comparable moral significance, the same roughly comparable in gravity to the harm one causes by performing the act in question. Erdemovich's case satisfies that condition as well. So I'm inclined to think that if we want to know whether he's blameless, and if his being morally justified settles that he's blameless, then in this case we can reach that conclusion rather quickly. But that just invites us to focus on a modified version of the case. Notice that If one theorizes the case in that way, it's only incidental that 
Erdemovich himself was threatened. It's structurally no different from a Jim and the Indian sort of case where an unthreatened person is justified in killing one to save many, provided the one he kills would have died anyway in the same way. So I'm going to consider a modified version of the Erdemovich case, one in which um, we suppose, this doesn't have to be certain, it can just be likely, that if he had refused and allowed himself to be shot along with some of the prisoners, at the same time some would have escaped in the confusion. Given that that's the case, he killed people who would not otherwise have died. So the Pareto principle doesn't apply. And we can ask the question again, in this circumstance, where the guy's life is threatened and he kills in order to save his own life, he kills people who would not otherwise have died, does he have some sort of moral defense? In the paper, which some of you may have read, I give an argument, which I am now less confident about than I was when I wrote the paper, um, for the conclusion that in this modified version of the case, the act is impermissible. Impermissible. And the argument for that case proceeds by way of a heuristic, which I call the assistance heuristic. The idea is this. Focus on the contrast between genuine self-defense, where you kill someone who's about to kill you and there's no option. Um, there's no other good way to save yourself. And mistaken self-defense, where, in fact, the guy's just reaching for his wallet. You think he's reaching for a gun. Well, your belief that he's reaching for a gun is reasonable. In that sort of case, this is my terminology, and Marcia's going to talk about this, so I want to emphasize it. I think genuine self-defense is a justification. In those circumstances, as they actually are, you are morally permitted to kill someone if that's the only way to stop him from killing you. Whereas mistaken self-defense, whether the belief is reasonable or merely honestly held, is at best an excuse. In those circumstances, you believe your objective circumstances justify your act. That belief is mistaken. But if the belief is blameless, you may nonetheless be blameless for acting as you do. So this is a heuristic for distinguishing justification from excuse. And the heuristic says, if informed third parties would be justified in helping you out, that's a good sign that the act in question is justified. So in the case where you really are repelling a threat that can't be repelled in any other way, if you are gun jammed, somebody else can hand you a gun, helping you out, assisting you, that is morally permissible. That's a good sign that the shooting in self-defense here is morally justified. Whereas, if you're shooting in mere mistaken self-defense, then an informed third party certainly can't help you carry out your plan. If he is ignorant as well, he may be blameless if he does help, but he's not justified in helping you out. That suggests that, as is the case on my taxonomy, genuine self-defense is a justification, whereas mistaken self-defense is an excuse. I wield that principle, argue that in the modified version of the Ardamovich case, where he's killing people who would not otherwise have died, a third party could not have helped him save himself by this means, say by handing him a better gun. That gives me some reason to believe, if this heuristic is sound, that the act is morally impermissible in the modified case. But you don't need this dodgy argument. It's plausible anyway. That if there's ever a case where you can't kill innocent people in order to save yourself, this is it. It might depend on numbers, ratchet up the numbers. You will get a version of this case where it's independently plausible that it is morally impermissible to kill the innocent in order to save yourself in circumstances like this. If that's right, then in the modified case, he is not morally justified in acting as he does. So the question is, might he have an excuse? He doesn't have the excuse I mentioned earlier. 
It's not part of this story that when he was threatened as he was, his mind was flooded with pain or anxiety or fear. He tells a story about what went through his head. It's very plausible. He said he considered his options. His first thought was to run off in the woods and be shouted to the back. Then he thought of his wife. He thought of his child. And he decided to comply. So his story is that he was fully aware of what he was doing and fully in possession of his faculties. He doesn't have the blameless incapacity excuse. What excuse might he have? Oh, my time. Here's my idea. Go back to mistaken self-defense, which I characterized as an excuse. Why is it an excuse? If you act on the reasonable but false belief that you're, you have no way to defend yourself but to kill your assailant, you are morally blameless, I say, why is that? I accept what I think of as a Strassonian answer to this question. Although killing in those circumstances is objectively impermissible, an act warrants resentment only if, in addition to its being impermissible, it manifests what's sometimes called ill will. The terminology is not good, but that's the shorthand that I will use. The idea is this. We owe one another a certain degree of concern, regard, and respect. One is required, and we're going to come back to what that means in a second, required in acting to care about the rights and the interests of other human beings and of other important values, the values that underlie claims of moral permissibility and impermissibility. A blameworthy action has to manifest an insufficient degree of concern or regard. That's the ill will condition. That explains why Mistaken self-defense, even if the act is impermissible, is nonetheless an excuse. I have a story about where the ill will condition comes from that I don't develop in the paper, but that I'm happy to discuss. The idea is that the more reactive emotions, like resentment and indignation, have intentional content. Part of what you think when you resent is that the action to which you're responding is an offense that is an impermissible action that is some kind of insult that manifests insufficient concern or regard for you or for those affected. Resentment is appropriate, warranted in the relevant sense, only if the thoughts implicit in resentment are all true in the case at hand. So where one of those thoughts is false, we have a defense. Where the ill will thought is false, we have the kind of excuse that I'm now going to discuss. So here's the hypothesis about the modified case. Erdemovich is not blameworthy because his actions do not manifest an insufficient degree of concern or respect for those affected. Now, this could seem completely hopeless. The italics emphasize how completely hopeless this can seem. We've stipulated that the act is morally impermissible in these circumstances. It is not morally okay to kill these innocent people in order to save yourself. But whatever it means to say that someone cares enough about the rights and interests of other people, it must mean this. Anyone who cares enough about these things will be motivated to refrain from killing other people when, as he may well know, this would be impermissible, this would be wrong. Someone who's blamelessly ignorant or incapacitated can be excused for acting wrongly, but a competent, informed agent who knowingly acts wrongly thereby shows, by knowingly acting wrongly, that in one way or another he doesn't care enough about morality and about the values that underlie it. 
So this hypothesis is a non-starter. To respond to this objection, we need to say something about what it means to care enough about the rights and interests of those affected and about the other values that underlie the facts of moral permissibility and impermissibility. Care enough. Care enough for what? The objection assumes a principle that can sound truistic. Whatever this means, if you care enough about morality and the underlying values, then you will always be moved to comply with the demands of morality when you know them. And I deny this, or at least I'm not sure that it's true. What does it mean to care enough? There are two ways to construe this idiom, this idiom of sufficient or insufficient concern. I like the second one, but I'll mention the first just because it is a possibility. One is to say, and I almost did say this before, that it is to be cashed out just in the deontic language of moral permissibility, just as there are moral, deontic moral constraints on actions. Some actions are morally permissible, others aren't. So there are deontic moral constraints of exactly the same kind on concern, on what we care about, on what matters to us. Certain things, we are morally required to care about certain things to a certain degree. Where caring about things involves not just sort of brute affect, but also dispositions to act in various ways, dispositions to be moved. At that level, the, dis the cognitive, desiderative, affective level, we are under moral constraints just as we are in the domain of action. If we understand this talk of sufficient concern in this deontic way, then here's what that hypothesis about the Ardemovich case requires us to say. He was morally required not to kill but he was not morally required to care enough about his victims and their rights and interests to be motivated not to kill. I think that is a conceptual possibility. That is, I don't think it is built into the natures of these ideas that we're throwing around, that inevitably, when one is morally required to do something, one is ipso facto morally required to care enough about the factors in virtue of which one is morally required to do it, to be motivated so to act. But I can't say much more about this hypothesis than that. It does strike me as a conceptual possibility, but I don't know how to develop the argument if one understands this talk of concern or insufficient concern in that way. So I'm going to suggest another way of understanding it, and I'm almost done. The proposal I want to float begins with an idea of Tim Scanlon's, Scanlon has a theory of blame and blameworthiness that's different from mine, at least verbally different from mine. Scanlon disavows the Strassonian reactive attitude conception of moral blame. He thinks blaming doesn't essentially have anything to do with these reactive sentiments. Rather, according to Scanlon, you blame someone for an act when you downgrade your relationship with that person in light of the attitudes expressed by his action. So when you blame someone, here's what happens, according to Scanlon, whatever you may feel, you come to trust the person less, to be less willing to cooperate with the person, to be less concerned about his particular weal and woe, to be less likely to cooperate with that person, and so on. You back off from the person. You distance yourself from that person socially. It's easiest to understand what this involves when the person you blame is a friend or an intimate of some kind, because then there is a relationship that is clearly downgradable. But even in the case of strangers, it's possible to do this. 
there is a sort of minimal degree of fellowship with which you interact with, with, with which you, uh, that you bring to a relationship with an arbitrary human being when you encounter him or her either in real life or in imagination. You care to some degree about what happens to the person, you take some interest, you have some willingness to cooperate, to help, and so on. You can back off from that. You can become chillier, less interested in interacting, even though you still regard the person as a human being and recognize all sorts of constraints on how you treat him or her. That sort of social distancing need not involve resentment and is conceptually independent of it. Here's my idea. Instead of treating the norms governing concern that are presupposed by this talk of ill will or an insufficiency of goodwill as deontic moral norms, understand them in Scanlon's terms. To manifest an insufficient degree of concern or respect is to manifest the sort of lack of concern or respect that would warrant Scanlon-style social distancing. So rock bottom in this account are social norms governing Scanlon-style social distancing. To say that someone's concern is inadequate or insufficient is to say that he falls below a threshold that would trigger that kind of social distancing. And then we say someone merits resentment, which isn't on Scanlon's map, only if his actions manifest an insufficient degree of concern, that is, only if his actions manifest the sort of lack of concern or respect that would warrant Scanlonian social distancing. So when the norm is interpreted in this way, my hypothesis about the case comes down to this. When morality is extraordinarily demanding, as it, in this case, as, as it is in this case, when morality is telling you to stand firm and allow yourself to be shot in the back, a competent, informed agent may act wrongly without thereby manifesting attitudes that would warrant social distancing. In particular, even if morality requires Erdemovich to allow himself to be shot in the back when he thinks of his wife and child and doesn't do this, the attitudes he thereby manifests do not fall below the relevant var. Here's the rhetorical reason for focusing on a real case. Erdemovich is still alive. He's a relatively young man. He could walk into this room now. And then we face a real question about what, what to make of him, what sort of response to have to him, and so on. The claim is, once we appreciate the position he was in and how awful it was, the right response to him, once you overcome the brute fact of being in the presence of a mass murderer, the right response to him is, given the circumstances he was in, to offer him a seat at the table, to make available to him the kind of ordinary social relationship that we would make available to any stranger. That's, the, that's an intuition, a judgment about that sort of case. If it's true, then the attitudes manifest in his act do not fall below the relevant bar, even though he acted impermissibly. And if the attitudes do not fall below that bar, then he doesn't merit resentment. So this is a kind of argument for the conclusion that was initially highly uncertain, 
Now, Demetrius is culpable only if his act warrants resentment, an act warrants resentment only if it manifests ill will, an act manifests ill will if and only if it warrants Scanlonian social distancing in light of the attitudes that underlie it, but his act doesn't warrant that kind of social distancing, so his act doesn't warrant resentment. The hardest premise is four, although Marsha's going to complain about others. Um, but it's more plausible to me than the conclusion of the argument itself was initially. So I take this to be some progress in bringing the question we began with into sharper focus. Um, that's all I can claim for it at this point. Even if you disagree about that verdict in this case, the larger theoretical point remains. Anyone who theorizes about moral responsibility and blameworthiness in this way, who invokes something like the ill will condition, needs an account of the content of that condition, what kind of norm governing concern it invokes. And the appeal to the norms governing Scanlonian social distancing is a theoretical proposal about how best to clarify that particular bit of normative verbiage that surfaces all over the place in theories of moral responsibility. So I'll stop there. Thank you. And thank Gideon for a really fascinating paper with far more in it than I could really respond to. Uh, and thanks to all of you for coming. I'm going to be reading an abridged version of my paper um, that way I can um, be sure that I'll stay within the 30-minute time allotment. I don't think I'd trust myself if I just um, did what a lot of other people seem to manage to do. You did a very good job. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So Gideon Rosen has drawn our attention to cases of duress of a particularly interesting sort. Is the mic right? Is it working okay? Okay, great. The person's mind is not flooded with pain or fear. She knows exactly what she is doing and she makes a clear-headed choice to act in, as Rosen says, awful ways. The explanation of why we excuse such actions cannot be that the action is not voluntary. It clearly is voluntary since the agent is choosing, albeit in a situation where there is no acceptable alternative and indeed no acceptable option, period. In addition, although some duress cases could also be viewed as necessity cases and thus as justified, Rosen wisely sets aside that complicating factor by zeroing in on cases where the action is not justified. So why do we, or more to the point, why is it appropriate to excuse in these cases where the action clearly is not justified and the agent acted voluntarily? I follow suit in focusing on cases where there is no justification. Because of that, I don't take up the question <coughs> of whether the agent is justified in this case or in that. I take as given that in Rosen's modified version of the case of Erdemovich, and I don't know how to say his name either, but that's just how I've been thinking about it, <laughs> writing the paper, so I'll say it that way. According to which Erdemovich could have saved some lives had he refused to do as ordered, he was not justified in acting as he did. So I'll just take that as given, that he was not justified in the modified case. I also take as given that on the assumption that he would have been killed had he refused, the fact of duress should provide him with an excuse. Rosen's answer to the question of why the fact of duress should provide him with an excuse is that, quote, when morality is extraordinarily demanding, failure to comply with its demands may reveal a pattern of concern that does not warrant social distancing, end of quote. 
I think that's basically right, though I'm not sure this much needs to be said. I'm inclined to say, much more simply, that there are circumstances that overstrain human nature, and while it may be necessary to stand in judgment in order to convey that the conduct was wrong, blaming the person is not called for. But more on this at the end of my paper. Mainly what I'll be doing is calling into question two claims Rosen makes on the way to his conclusion. The first is the claim that, quote, an act is blameworthy only if it manifests insufficient concern or regard for those affected. End of quote. And the other point of disagreement concerns just how justifications differ from excuses. I'll be taking issue with his assertion that, quote, killing in mistaken self-defense is at best excused, end of quote, and with the implicit assumption that justification should be pegged to the way things actually are rather than to reasonable belief. Oh, by the way, there's a handout. Um, so it was in the packet you got. It isn't terribly important, but if you want to get it out, you could. Um, there are just a few times when I'm going to refer to one or two, and you might want to know what they are. So that's really the main reason for the handout. So the next section challenges the first claim, what Rosen calls the ill will condition, and this is on your handout as the first item, though you probably remember it anyway because he did a good job of highlighting it in the talk. So I argue that an act and likewise a failure to act can be blameworthy without manifesting insufficient concern or regard for those affected. So consider the case of Aromako. This is kind of a small country. I hope nobody here is related to Atamaka because here I am using this recent court case um, for sort of dry analysis, but um, it's not that small a country. Okay, so consider the case of Atamaka. Atamaka's patient died during surgery after the tube carrying oxygen from the ventilator became disconnected. Atamaka, the anesthetist, did not notice that the tube was not connected or that the patient had stopped breathing and was turning blue. He did attend to the alarm that went off about four minutes after the tube became detached, but his focus seems to have been in the machine in determining whether it was malfunctioning, rather than on what condition in the patient might have caused a drop in his blood pressure triggering the alarm. He did not ignore the patient exactly. He administered atropine to raise the patient's pulse, hardly what was called for. It was only after the patient suffered cardiac arrest some seven minutes after the alarm sounded, that Automaco realized that the tube was disconnected and that his patient was not breathing. Barring an excusing condition, it seems clear that Automaco is blameworthy for his conduct. He's also blameworthy for the patient's death, but that's less to the point, given that my purpose here is to evaluate the ill will condition. He should have been paying closer attention to his patient even before the alarm went off. And once it went off, should certainly have taken a good look at him. He's blameworthy even though his conduct does not manifest insufficient concern for his patient or for anyone else. Automaco, in fact, was convicted of manslaughter, specifically criminal negligence manslaughter. There is room for debate as to whether that went too far. I'm sympathetic to the view that it did. I'm not convinced, but sympathetic to it. I don't see it as an egregious outcome, but civil liability seems more appropriate here than criminal liability, and an outcome of losing his license to practice medicine together with a civil judgment would seem more apt than a conviction of manslaughter. But even if we think a criminal trial, conviction, and punishment 
were not in order, it's hard to deny that he is, in the absence of some further explanation, morally blameworthy. Had it emerged that he had, unbeknownst to him, some health problem that left him confused, confused enough to explain his failure to attend properly to his patient, this could be an excusing condition. By contrast, an absence of ill will or the fact that his conduct does not manifest a dearth of appropriate concern would not. Not that degree of concern would be irrelevant, but that his conduct does not manifest insufficient concern does not suffice to render him not blameworthy. Now, the Adomaco, the Adomaco case is perplexing. We're told too little about why he acted as he did. If one finds his behavior so baffling that it seems a poor case to rely on, more routine, less perplexing cases can stand in its place. Consider someone who, after drinking a couple of martinis on an empty stomach, drives to the grocery store to do his weekly shopping. His conduct, let's stipulate, does not manifest insufficient concern for the welfare of others. Instead, it manifests his overconfidence in his ability to drive safely, even after having had two martinis. I take it that we judge him blameworthy, barring excusing conditions, and if he causes an accident, we probably blame him. If we, if we refrain from blaming him, it's not simply because his conduct does not manifest insufficient concern. Now, it might be argued that in both of these cases, insofar as we judge the person morally blameworthy, we are tacitly assuming that the action manifests a lack of concern for those affected. Insufficient concern for his patient, it might be claimed, just has to be part of the explanation of Adomako's conduct, unless there is some explanation, such as an attention deficit disorder, diagnosed only after his patient's death, let's add, and if there is, that disorder would or should excuse him. So that's a position one might take, and I'll be coming back to this in a few minutes. The ill will condition I've suggested should be rejected. Instead of saying either that an action is blameworthy only if it manifests insufficient concern or shifting the focus to the person, that a person is blameworthy for action A only if A manifests insufficient concern, we can come at it from the other direction and say that a person is blameworthy for action A if A is wrong and not justified and there is no excusing condition that applies. In other words, if one acts wrongly, the presumption is that one is blameworthy, one is blameworthy unless an excusing condition applies. This may seem harsh, and maybe it is, but we should bear in mind that to say of a person that she's blameworthy is not to say that I blame her. Perhaps I don't blame her because I don't think I have standing to do so. And my reluctance to blame need not have to do only with my lack of standing. I could consistently believe someone blameworthy for A without thinking it appropriate for anyone to blame her, though I think that would be unusual. I think it's possible. I might hold that what she did was wrong and that there is nothing that excuses it, yet that there is no point, no value in blaming her. She's suffering terribly for the consequences of what she did. She knows very well that she acted wrongly. She accepts full responsibility. If she could make amends, she eagerly would, perhaps even would be happy to give her life to bring back the person she killed if only she could. Grim cases come to mind. For example, the parent who, distracted by some change in his morning routine, forgets that the baby is in the back seat and that he's supposed to drop her off at the child care center on his way to work, Left for hours, she dies in the suffocating heat. We might well judge the parent blameworthy, 
and may think that although the change in his routine, for example, that he had to give a house guest a ride to the train station, helps to render his mistake more understandable, but that it doesn't excuse it. <coughs> but blaming seems inapt and cruel, and we can recognize that while also believing him blameworthy. One other factor that mitigates the harshness of my view deserves mention. When I say that if one acts wrongly, the presumption is that one is blameworthy, I mean wrongly in the formal, not the material sense. If Jan sought to harm Joe but inadvertently helped him, she acted formally wrongly but materially rightly. If Caroline used self-defensive force when she had very good reason to think it necessary under the circumstances, she did not act wrongly in the formal sense, even if it turns out that the apparent assailant was only trying to intimidate her. So when I say that if one acts wrongly, the presumption is that she is blameworthy. This applies only to actions that are formally wrong. Relatedly, I understand justification more expansively than Rosen does. This is a very related point. And I'll be saying more about that in a bit. I return now to a possible reaction sketched above to the case of Adamako. Insofar as we judge him blameworthy, it might be claimed, we tacitly assume that his action manifested insufficient concern for those affected. If that's right, the case does not tell against the ill will condition. Moreover, one might claim in support of the ill will condition that if there is no lack of concern, then the only possible explanation of the person's behavior would be something that does constitute an excusing condition. But is there really no other possible explanation? Consider Adamako again. We don't know, at least I don't, why he failed to notice that his patient wasn't breathing. But here are some <coughs> possibilities. These are presented in your handout as one, two, and three towards the bottom of page one. And as I mentioned on the handout, these are simply something I'm concocting out of thin air. They have no uh, support in the record as far as I know. <coughs> One, he was very confused thanks to a medication he took exactly as his doctor prescribed and with a doctor's assurance that he would not have any problems with it. Two, he was very confused thanks to a medication he took as his doctor prescribed, though disregarding the doctor's warning that it might cause some mental confusion. Both one and two provide an explanation of Adamako's failure. I take it that one exculpates and that two does not. Now, if you're unsure what to say about two, if you're unsure whether two exculpates, let's add to the story that about 10 minutes before surgery was due to begin and before administering the anesthesia, he became aware that he was in a sort of mental fog. He had enough clarity to remember his doctor's warning and to realize that the confusion he was experiencing might very well persist during the surgery. And he also knew there would very likely be another anesthetist available to quickly replace him. But he just didn't want to call attention to his problems, so he said nothing and hoped for the best. So I neglected to include those details as a possible expansion of two in the handout, so just bear in mind when I'm talking about two that we should add those, those details to, to make sure it's clear uh, that two really does not exculpate. Finally, consider a different explanation, if it can even qualify as an explanation. Three, he just didn't notice that his patient was not breathing. Perhaps because given the patient's overall health, the sort of surgery it was, and his experience with this particular anesthesia, the possibility that the patient might stop breathing 
did not occur to him. Because it did not occur to him, he looked for other explanations for the beeping of the monitor. So while one clearly exculpates, two and three, I take it, do not. Does his conduct, as explained in two and three, manifest a lack of concern for those affected by his actions? No. One might think that two does, given the details I added to it, but it needn't. It's not as if our affective and conative states are such that any reluctance to do X, where X would be the course that one would pick if one thought only of the possible negative effects on S and sought to prevent them, means a lack of concern for S. Nor does it mean less concern for S than that felt and exhibited by someone else who opted to do X. That he was more concerned than he should have been about calling attention to his own health problems need not show a lack of concern for his patient. One might argue that three really does exculpate. It was just an honest mistake. He just didn't notice. And if we want to know why, three also suggests a benign explanation, one that doesn't reflect badly on his character. But this won't do. As an anesthetist, Adomako has the responsibility of paying careful attention during surgery to his patient. He's required to be on the lookout for all manner of problems, common and unusual alike. That he did not notice is no excuse. We would need some further story before just not noticing could exculpate, and even then, what would exculpate, if anything did, would not be the just not noticing, but the story that makes some sense of why it was that he did not notice. If the explanation is that he did not notice because the patient was in such good health that it did not occur to him that the monitor's beep could actually indicate a serious problem, this does not suffice to show that he's not morally responsible for his conduct. So it's not the case that there's no possible explanation other than a lack of concern for his patient that can explain his conduct, yet not exculpate. My claim, then, is that contrary to the suggestion under consideration in this section, the Adomako case does indeed tell against the ill will condition. I turn now to the other fairly fundamental matter on which Rosen and I disagree, the nature of and the differences between justifications and excuses. We divide them up somewhat differently, and some of what he counts as not justified, only excused, I would count as justified. Now, on one key point on which some would beg to differ, we are in agreement. We agree that if an action is justified, it's permissible and need not be better than permissible. But whereas Rosen holds that killing in mistaken self-defense is at best excused, I maintain that it can be justified. Unlike Rosen, I understand justification to hinge on reasonable belief rather than on truth. That is, what decides whether S was justified in doing A is determined by what S believed concerning S and whether S, sorry, I'm not sure if I said that right. That is, what decides whether S was justified in doing A is determined by what S believed concerning X and whether S held the belief on reasonable grounds. Truth is not necessary for justification. Now, in ordinary thinking about justification with respect to belief, I think it would be obvious that truth is not necessary for justification. 
Your mistaken belief that you're taking the coach to London rather than to Stansted may be justified by, for example, you're having been told as you boarded the coach by the person collecting the tickets, this coach goes to London. Although it's not quite as obvious that the action you take based on your reasonable but mistaken belief should be classified as justified, that it should be so classified is reasonably clear, particularly if it's evident that you acted exactly as you should have given the evidence available to you. Now, Rosen is by no means alone in holding that if the belief is mistaken, then whatever defense one has, such that were the belief true, it would be a justification, can only be an excuse. The view he takes is held by, amongst others, Claire Finkelstein, George Fletcher, John Gardner, Heidi Hurd, Michael Moore, and Paul Robinson. So why do so many people hold this view? And what explains the disagreement between those who hold it and those who don't? Well, I can't pretend to answer this fully, but part of the story, I think, is this. Those of us who reject the view that Rosen takes are thinking of justification first and foremost as we find it in such locutions as she was justified in, or I was justified in, that is, in appraisals of the agent's conduct, or queries about such appraisals, as in, but was she really justified? By contrast, those who affirm the view that Rosen takes are not thinking of justification as attaching to some, how someone conducted herself, but as attaching to actions or action types themselves viewed without attention to a particular actor. If one tacitly assumes as a paradigmatic use of justified, its occurrence in <clears throat> under what circumstances is intentional killing justified, one will be thinking of justification somewhat differently than if one tacitly assumes as a paradigmatic use of justified its occurrence in she was justified in. Now, just to clarify, I'm assuming here agreement that mere permissibility suffices for justification. The disagreement concerns whether justification is being viewed as attaching mainly to the action or action type or instead to the agent and how she conducted herself. Moreover, the factors that properly go into answering the question, but was she really justified in doing X? And to under what circumstances is intentional killing justified will not be the same. An answer to the first will require attention to what the person in question thought and on what grounds. An answer to the second will not be of the form, it is justified if the agent thinks that P, but rather, it is justified if P. Thus, those whose focus in thinking about justification is on she was justified will naturally understand justification to require not truth, but only reasonable belief. Whereas those whose focus is on statements such as killing is justified only when, and so on, will understand justification as Rosen does. Both ways of thinking about justification have a real point, and both have a real point in the context of criminal law. We do need, after all, to ask under what circumstances intentional killing is justified. And we also need to ask of this person or that whether she was justified in using physical force against V in the circumstances in which she did so. In other words, we need to talk about when something, for example, killing, that normally is wrong, is in fact permissible. And although these could simply be called permissions, 
or exceptions to prohibitions, it's common to speak of them as justifications. And we need to be able to speak of justifications in the sense of a defense that a particular person might put forward or that might be put forward on his behalf. Without wishing to say that one notion of justification is more important than the other, I would observe that in the context of a discussion of what differentiates justifications from excuses, the appropriate sense of justification is the one that treats justifications like excuses as defenses. For we're then comparing apples to apples. One defense put forward on an agent's behalf, she was justified in. To another, <coughs> what she did was wrong, but given these points, she isn't culpable. Now, if you think of justifications and excuses in this way, as defenses put forward, or as defenses someone challenges, as in, was she really justified? A justification is naturally going to involve, and centrally involve, what the agent thought and whether there were good grounds for so thinking. Whether what the agent thought was in fact the case will not play a significant role. That the belief that served as the basis for her action was not mistaken is not necessary for justification. Thus, if in thinking about justification, you were thinking of justified in I was justified or she was justified, justification doesn't hinge on how things actually are. It would be odd to say or to think, no, she wasn't justified in thinking that because it wasn't the case, though I agree she couldn't possibly have known that it wasn't the case. If she couldn't possibly have known that it wasn't the case and had very good reason for thinking it was, she was justified. Okay, in the preceding section, I suggested an ex explanation for the disagreement between those who tether justification to reasonable belief and those who tether it to truth. The latter approach makes sense insofar as one's focus is on the use of the word justified to assert that X, though ordinarily wrong, is permitted in circumstances C. The former approach makes sense insofar as one's focus is on assertions that S was justified in doing X in C. Moreover, I suggested that in the context of a discussion of what differentiates justifications from excuses, the former approach is more apt. But, it's argued, if we allow that an action based on a mistaken, albeit reasonable, belief can be justified, what of the principle that the right of a third party to assist in resisting an attack turns on whether the attack was justified? And also, won't it wreak havoc for two-party cases? What if I reasonably but mistakenly believe that you're about to attack me, and so I attack you, and you use force to repel my attack? Surely it can't be that we're both justified, yet it looks like this is what would have to be allowed. In reply, my view is that the position that the rights of third parties turn on whether the attack was justified is oversimplified, and the position that, as Fletcher puts it, it's contradictory to say that both sides to the conflict were justified in their use of force is false. Not only is that not contradictory, in some unhappy situations, it is indeed the case that both parties were justified. So to answer the questions I posed, the principle about third party assistance should be rejected and it can indeed be the case that both parties to a conflict were justified in their use of force. <coughs> I should insert here that in writing this paragraph, I didn't have Rosen's paper in mind, but common arguments in favor of tethering justification to truth. I later went back and reread the paper and thought, oh, it probably sounded like I was addressing that. His discussion of the third party assistant principle wasn't presented as such an argument. It was used for a different purpose. Okay, getting back to 
uh, point I brought up earlier on. Rosen answers the question of why we excuse in cases of duress as follows. When morality is extraordinarily demanding, failure to comply with its demands may reveal a pattern of concern that does not warrant social distancing. Although I reject the ill will condition which he relied on to come to this conclusion, I'm less resistant to the conclusion because it doesn't rule out the possibility that one can be blameworthy for A without A manifesting a lack of concern for those affected. I see it to be a merit of his conclusion that it captures well the modified case of Verdamovich and also those of Dudley and Stevens in the famous 1884 English shipwreck and cannibalism case. And at the same time, does not entail that Adomako is not morally blameworthy. It doesn't speak to the Adomako case since there were no extraordinary moral demands in play. But although Rosen's conclusion has considerable merit, I wonder, do we need to say all this to explain why we excuse in the modified case of Adamovich? I'm not sure. An alternative is simpler, but maybe too simple. It would have taken great moral heroism to abide in those circumstances by morality's requirements, and those who did not display such heroism should not be considered morally blameworthy. To spell out the simple thought more fully, recall Lord Coleridge's famous remarks in Dudley and Stevens. Well, they're not that famous, but if you, in, if you work in the area of philosophy of law, you've probably come across this. In support of his position that it is, quote, our duty to declare that the prisoner's act in this case was willful murder, unquote, Lord Coleridge asserted, quote, we are often compelled to set up standards we cannot reach ourselves and to lay down rules which we could not ourselves satisfy, end quote. I take it that the main reason we excuse in duress cases is that we don't agree with Lord Coleridge. We think it's singularly inappropriate to hold others on pain of punishment to standards that we cannot reach ourselves. To be sure, we may want to affirm the standards even though we realize that in some circumstances we may well not be able to abide by them. For we want to make clear that we do not think it permissible to violate the standards even in those circumstances. But punishing those who have, in extremely difficult circumstances, failed to abide by them is clearly not warranted if we know that few of us, judges and fellow members of the community, would manage to do any better. This is one well-recognized, albeit slightly dangerous, basis for excuses. We excuse when circumstances are such that it is too much to demand on pain of punishment full compliance with the law or with the requirements of morality. Now, one might say that we still judge the person blameworthy, but because we think we have no standing to blame, since we don't doubt we would have acted differently, we refrain from blaming and punishing. But this need not be the case. We may judge the person not blameworthy at all on the grounds that she faced circumstances that overstrain human nature. Now, I intimated that this basis for excuses is somewhat dangerous. The danger I have in mind is a sort of moral complacency, something akin to an acceptance of terrible misconduct just because we know we too might have so acted. A readiness to excuse because of such a judgment, often a decidedly gendered judgment, is part of the explanation of lenience shown towards men who kill their female partners or their partners, partners' alleged lovers because of suspected infidelity. 
Given the danger, the well-recognized basis for excuses, often put in terms of concessions to human frailty, merits rethinking and refining. That said, the core idea that when morality or the law is extraordinarily demanding, we should not hold blameworthy and certainly should not punish those to, who fail to adhere to its demands, because we know that most of us likewise would also fail, seems to me sound. Proper attention to the scope of the words we and us and to whether this exemption from blame could be reasonably rejected by others may suffice to address the danger I noted. Still, Rosen's approach has the great merit of avoiding the danger altogether, and on that ground, as well as for the reason that it provides a more probing explanation of why we excuse in cases such as that of Erdemovich, is perhaps to be preferred. Thank you. Did you want to say a few things first? I, I, I won't say much, because I want to hear what the, the audience has to say. But about Adamapo, um, I've thought quite a lot about these cases of pure negligence. So negligence is failure to take some precaution that one was required to take in the circumstances. Very often, negligence manifests lack of concern. And I should say, although in this paper I talk quite a lot about concern for those affected, when I'm being more careful or stating my view correctly, the blameworthy act has to manifest an objectionable pattern of concern. So even if you care quite a lot about the victims, if you care more about your reputation or about not calling attention to your own uh, muddle-headedness, that's an objectionable pattern of concern. And the requirement is that a blameworthy act needs to manifest an objectionable pattern of concern. It doesn't always, for the reasons you gave, need to manifest sort of absolute lack of concern for the victims. If you care more about yourself than about them, that's bad enough. Well, that makes yeah. a big difference. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I take the ill will condition. I'd be much more favorably disposed to it. Right. So now we need to focus on cases of negligence where the action doesn't manifest an objectionable pattern of concern in that more expansive sense. So the case where Adamako just doesn't notice, and if we ask why he doesn't notice, the answer isn't he doesn't care enough or he cares too much about his own uh, self-presentation. The answer isn't that he was confused. The answer isn't that there was some capacity that he lacked or that was substantially impaired. Then when we get to the pure case, my, although I think the intuitive verdict is that it was his job to notice he didn't, so he's blameworthy. He has no excuse. If you follow him from moment to moment, he's acting at each stage from ignorance. There's a fact. The guy's tube has been dis disconnected. The patient requires my attention, that, of which he is unaware from moment to moment. And if we ask why he's unaware of this fact, the answer can only be in this highly stipulated version of the case. Some subpersonal explanation that is something that doesn't avert to his person-level psychology, something about the way his neurons happen to be firing, if there's an explanation at all. We have these capacities to notice and remember the things that we ought to notice and remember, but they're not surefire capacities. Sometimes they just fail to fire for no particular reason at all. If that's what's going on with Adamako, his capacities for doing these things, which he is relying on all the time as he goes about his business in the operating room, those capacities for no particular reason are just failing to discharge their normal roles, then I think he's not blameworthy. So, in the pure case, that's the story I tell, though I agree it's at odds with the normal right. verdict we have. All right, I think we should finish there. So, let us thank our speakers very much. Thank you.